this reading from Isaiah 63 reminds us that God is present in all of our circumstances. I like to be close to you all, and there's nobody in these first couple of pews, so I'm just going to come down a little closer if that's all right. God is present in all of our circumstances. God knows our suffering. God knows our pain. God knows our joy. God knows all of the things that we experience um, because God is present with us. And that is one of the great truths of the meaning of Christmas, that God did not remain separate or removed from our world, but entered into it as a person, as a human being, uh, even Jesus our Savior. So today we're going to be thinking about, uh, in particular, how God is present in the midst of hardship, in the midst of trouble, in one of the formative stories in Jesus' own life. Uh, This is a story that comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. And we've been leading up to this story throughout the service by telling the story of the wise men, uh, the magi who came to worship Jesus from afar. Uh, They have encountered King Herod and have found where Jesus was to be born and have come to find him and worship him and give him gifts and then have gone back to their home country. Um, And now we pick up the story in Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23. When they had gone, when the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill All the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for this word. And I give you thanks for this story that forms Jesus' life. And as we reflect on this story and on your presence in the midst of even Jesus' hardship, I pray that you would meet us in the midst of our hardships, our difficulties, our struggles, so that we might know without a doubt that we are not alone. We thank you, Lord, for this word, and we pray that you would speak to each of our hearts in the next few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We love a good origin story, right? You can have all of the Marvel movies in the world, or all of the Star Trek movies, or all of the Lord of the Rings movies, or all of the epic quest movies in the world, but until you get that origin story that tells you where the character came from, the story is not yet complete. We love a good origin story, because it tells us the motivations and the drives and the impulses that have formed this hero or heroine uh, for his or her life. And in some ways, this story from Matthew 2, and really the first couple of chapters of Matthew, are Jesus' origin story. If there were any hero in the history of the universe that we would like to know the origin story of, it might be Jesus. And Matthew and Luke, in a different way, uh, give us a couple of vantage points on the origin story of this hero, of this Jesus. For Matthew... Jesus is very much the fulfillment of many Old Testament prophecies. And Matthew is concerned above all else to convince us that Jesus is the new Moses. That Jesus is the successor to the hero from ancient days, Moses. That Jesus fulfills what Moses uh, began and and Jesus follows in Moses' footsteps. As important as Moses was for the Old Testament Israelites, Jesus is that important for this new thing of uh, the, the way of Jesus, the way that we would now call Christianity. So he begins with this origin story. A story that includes the family's dramatic escape to Egypt from the maniacal wrath of King Herod. This story shows us that Jesus is personally familiar with chaos and hardship. Mary and Joseph and Jesus were a family in exile, forced to seek refuge in a foreign country for a period of time. Jesus knows what it is like to be a refugee. From his earliest days, And into his ministry as an adult, Jesus has identified with those that are on the margins of society. Those that are outcasts, those that are wanderers, people who must flee for their safety. This story of Jesus and his parents escaping to Egypt for a period of time may have even helped to form him, to form his his awareness of the world, his compassion for those that are suffering, those that are oppressed by the rich and powerful, those that are displaced, those who are afraid for their lives. And so Jesus showed compassion throughout his ministry, especially to those who were on the outskirts. And we who follow Jesus are called to extend that same compassion and love to people in our world who face those same kinds of threats against their safety and well-being, too. 
But why did Jesus have to flee? Why did Jesus and his family have to leave Judea? There's some history to this story, uh, that, uh, th- th- some context that makes this story even more rich than what Matthew has recorded for us. King Herod was, by all historical accounts, a crazy man. He was, he was uh, paranoid and thought that all people were out to get him. He was afraid to lose the power that he had. We call him king only because the Roman Senate appointed him to be king. And this is an important part of his story. Uh, Herod was not from a, a historical dynasty of kings. He had not inherited the kingship uh, from anyone in particular. Rome was in charge. The Roman Empire was the power of the day. And they had control of the whole Mediterranean world, including Judea, where Jerusalem is, and Samaria up to the north, and Galilee, and all the places that used to be historical Israel. And so they put different people in charge of different places that they owned. The Romans did. And uh, they put Herod in charge of this region, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, all of it. And they anointed him, appointed him rather, king of the Jews. It was a title that was bestowed on him. And probably made him feel pretty important. But he was very paranoid that someone would try to take his life and take his power from him. And so he rather systematically had a number of people eliminated, executed from around him and around his circle, even people who were close to him, relatives, a brother-in-law, a mother-in-law, his favorite wife, three of his own sons, executed because he perceived them to be threats to his power. He was crazed and paranoid. He did survive at least one uh, assassination attempt. Not all of his paranoia was invented in his brain. There were people who tried to take his life, uh, but he survived one particular assassination attempt. And uh, in response, he rounded up the 10 um, assailants, the 10 would-be perpetrators of this assassination, and their families, and had them all summarily executed. Herod is not a pleasant guy. No wonder, then, that when these wise men from a distant land far off to the east came to Jerusalem and knocked on Herod's door and said, we're looking for the one who has been born king of the Jews. Don't miss that detail. Not appointed by Rome, but born king of the Jews. No wonder that Herod is so full of rage and must have this child destroyed. Go and find him. Let me know where he is. And then I can come and worship him too. Now, uh, the story that we've read today from Matthew 2 includes this terrible and sad account of the children of of Bethlehem and its vicinity being slaughtered by Herod and his people, not by Herod personally, for sure, but by his his armies or whatever. Um, the, The difficulty with this story is that we don't have any other historical record of that event taking place. None of the other historians from the time record that there was this massacre of young people in, in, uh, in Judea, according to this edict from Herod. Um, so that could mean a couple of things. It could mean that maybe there weren't that many children who were killed. Um, it could mean that Herod just had a whole bunch of people killed all the time, and so it didn't make the 
headline news of the time to have a, a number of people, a number of young people killed in, in, uh, in, in a, town, a small town like Bethlehem. In any case, whatever happened in this terribly dramatic and tragic story, Jesus and his family escaped from it. It is in that world, in that context, that Jesus flees with his parents. And after a number of years, after uh, Herod died, uh, which he died in about, I think, 4 B.C., um, don't let the B.C. throw you off. You think B.C. means before Christ and, and Jesus is already around for, yeah, he was probably born around 5 or 6 or 7 B.C. The, the guy who threw a dart at the dartboard to pick when Jesus was born missed by, a, you know, a couple of years. So everything's shifted a little bit. Jesus was born probably around 5, 6, 7 B.C. Herod died a few years later, about 4 B.C. And then uh, Jesus and the family were ready to move back to Israel. They moved not to Bethlehem in Judea where Jesus was born because uh, when Herod the Great died, his uh, kingdom, as it was, uh, was divided up among his sons, those that had survived him. And uh, Archelaus, the one son who ruled over Judea, was even worse than his father, and he was just a mess. So uh, Joseph and Mary didn't go back to Judea. They moved to Nazareth up north, uh, to Galilee in particular. And Matthew is careful through all of the telling of the story, as he's careful in all of the stories that he tells from beginning to end of the gospel, that all of this happens to fulfill scripture. All of this happens to make true what the prophets had predicted so many centuries earlier. And what Matthew is trying to convince us of, again, is that Jesus is the new Moses. Just as Moses led the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt, so Jesus will lead the people out of slavery to sin. And in this story, in particular, uh, among all the parallels from Moses to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, this story gives us one key insight. Moses, as a child, remember, survived slaughter of many Hebrew boys. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, where the Israelites were enslaved at the time, had decided that the Israelites were growing at too quick of a pace, and so he decided to eliminate all of the boys under a certain age, and that would have included Moses had his mother not created that reed basket and floated him out on the Nile River, right? And Pharaoh's daughter found him, and the story goes on from there. Moses was saved from this terrible slaughter of innocence. In the same way, Jesus is saved from a terrible slaughter of innocence. It's, it's a parallel that, that Matthew is very clearly drawing for us. Jesus is the new Moses. And it's because of this origin story that Jesus has, full of chaos and hardship, that Jesus is qualified, like Moses before him, to bring freedom to the people of God. The hardship that Jesus faced was not just limited to this escape from Herod. After Jesus and the family came back to Nazareth, uh, Matthew records for us that uh, to fulfill scripture, uh, he would be called a Nazarene living in Nazareth. A side note, we have no idea what scripture Matthew is referring to there. Uh, He will be called a Nazarene is a phrase that doesn't appear anywhere in the Old Testament. Who knows what he was referring to? 
But to be called a Nazarene was not a good thing. It was not a badge of honor. It was kind of an insult. He's from that backwoods town called Nazareth. He's not a, a city guy. He's a country bumpkin. I don't know. What would you say? He's, uh, he's, not a, he's from Hicksville, USA. What would you call it, right? He's, he's a Nazarene. He's one of those people. Can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Uh, someone said about Jesus when he was a little bit older, uh, he will be called a Nazarene. That's just like God, to use the surprising to use the unpredictable, to use the outsider to accomplish his purposes in the world. Matthew has already emphasized this a bunch in the first chapter of the gospel as he tells the genealogy of Jesus, where Jesus came from, starting with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Jacob had a son named Perez. Oh, but Perez. How did he come about? Jacob was the father of Perez, And the mother of Perez was the daughter-in-law of Jacob. Don't think about that too much. Judah, I'm getting the names mixed up, not Judah. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. And then Judah had a son through his daughter-in-law. And uh, that's a messy story. Her name was Tamar. And she's named in the genealogy of Jesus. There are four women, other than Mary, the mother of Jesus, who are referenced in this genealogy. And they all refer to these really complicated and sort of messy stories. Tamar, who became pregnant by her uh, father-in-law. Rahab, who was a prostitute. And uh, then the wife of Uriah, not named in Matthew, but Bathsheba, you know, the mother of Solomon, the husband of David. Um... A husband of David, not by her choice, really. And um, the fourth one was Ruth. Thank you. What did I say? Wife of David. I'm okay. These these words get confused in my brain sometimes. And thank you, Ruth. Right, was the fourth woman uh, referenced in this genealogy. Ruth, who was a fine, upstanding individual, but not an Israelite. She was a foreigner, an outsider, who came into the fold and chose to follow, uh, to follow the way, became the great-grandmother of David. So all of these complicated stories form Jesus' genealogy, and now here's one more, that Jesus comes from this nowhere town called Nazareth. This is what God has done throughout all of Uh, all of the history of the Old Testament, too. Um, King David started as a young boy, the youngest of a series of brothers. Nobody thought he would be king, but God anointed him to be king even when he was still rather young. Um, Joshua, going all the way back to the successor of Moses, Joshua thought he was too young and inexperienced to be a leader. Moses himself was a stammerer and tried to get out of the business of taking the people out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, The first disciples of Jesus were fishermen. They were not elite religious types. They were not educated or wealthy. They were just normal people. Paul himself was, although educated and religious, he was a persecutor of Christians before he became a follower of Jesus. God has a history of preferring the unlikely. Why? Because then we can't miss God's presence. Then we can't miss that it's God who's at work. 
When God's purposes are accomplished in the world, it's not because we humans are so gifted or wise or powerful. Humility is a key virtue for Christians. God chooses to work through humble people in humble situations precisely so that they can remain humble while giving praise to God for showing up. Otherwise, we might develop big egos and forget about God. But God always shows up. In the midst of chaos and hardship, God is present. God is always working for good in the world. God showed up, of course, most presently and most importantly in the birth of Jesus, in the incarnation. Fully divine and fully human, this Jesus is. And he comes at a perfect time in human history, in a time of Roman occupation, when the political world is in need of some help, and a time of of religious reform, when that is needed as well. God shows up. And in the life of this infant Jesus, God shows up. Even in this story, an angel appears to Joseph a couple of times. An angel, a messenger from God. This is a a message coming from God uh, that tells Joseph to do a couple of things here and there. Joseph had other dreams before this. And God gives Joseph guidance at these key points in the story of the birth of Jesus. At any of these moments, things could have gone from bad to worse. But God showed up. God was present in the life of Jesus, just as God has always been present in the lives of God's people throughout history. And you might be thinking, well, that's great. Jesus was an important guy for God to show up in the life of. Moses, too, and Joshua, and David, and all of those other people, they were important. But why would God choose to be present with me? Who am I that God would want to be present with me? Well, that's who God is. Time and time and time again, God is the one who is close to the people of God. God shows up in God's people's, in the people of God's lives. And we see this not in the stories, not always in the stories of the famous and powerful people from, from biblical history, but in some of those that are on the outskirts too. Think back to Abraham and Sarah, the beginners of the, of the family tree, so to speak, going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham and Sarah were childless at first, before Isaac was born. And so they came up with a plan that Abraham would, uh, would sleep with uh, the, the maid servant Hagar, and have a child with her. And so they did, and Hagar became pregnant and gave birth to a son, Ishmael, long before Isaac ever entered the picture. And they thought that would be it. But it turned out not to be it. And there was some family conflict, as happens. And one thing led to another, and Hagar and Ishmael were sent away, kicked out, left to wander through the wilderness on their own. Good luck. You're not going to be part of our family, Abraham and Sarah said, anymore. And so Hagar calls out to God. And God responds. God is present in her life and says, I will make you into a great nation too. The Ishmaelites become a people group. Um, that's how uh, the, the, well, anyway, uh, what's important about Hagar's response is that she says uh, about God that he is the one who sees her. You are the God who sees me. You are the one who sees, uh, S-E-E-S, the one who has vision to see me. Uh, That's who God is. God is the one who sees. Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
when she became pregnant, said, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. God is always present in the lives of his people. And Jesus embodies that reality as he ministers to people in his adult ministry. He, he finds a woman who has been caught in adultery. Rather, she's brought to him and the people want her to be stoned to death because of her sinfulness. And Jesus uh, tells them to just kind of go away, leave her alone. Uh, those of you without sin, cast the first stone. And they realize that they've all sinned, so they all leave. And then Jesus turns to the woman and says, where are your accusers? Well, they're gone. And then he says to her, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Jesus shows up in her life and brings life to her situation. The disciple Peter, who was closer to Jesus than perhaps any of the other disciples, with maybe the exception of John. Uh, Peter was so close to Jesus, and yet when Jesus was arrested, tried, and then executed, Peter found himself denying that he even knew Jesus, let alone was one of his followers. I've never even heard of the man. Three times he denied Jesus. Then after Jesus' death and resurrection, he appears to Peter and restores him. Three times he says to him, do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my sheep. Restoration with a purpose. Jesus shows up in the life of Peter. Every time one of these Bible characters experiences chaos and hardship, every time their world is falling apart, God showed up. God was present. God was a stabilizing force, a source of strength. God proved that he was working for good in the world. These stories are important for us, all of them. Because we today also need to be reminded that God is present in the midst of our chaos and hardship. That God is still working for good in this world. God has not changed. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Deuteronomy says, I will never leave you or forsake you. In John 16, Jesus promises that he will send the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who will come and guide us into all truth. God has been, is, still, and always will be present. God has been, and is, still, and always will be working for good. This conviction has sustained people of faith for centuries. And it will sustain us today as well. No matter what the situation is that in your life, whatever chaos or hardship or brokenness or difficulty or fear or weakness, God is present. Our spiritual work is to learn to rely on this truth. To learn to embody this truth for other people. The two great commandments, as Jesus uh, found them and cited them is, uh, are to, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to, learn, to, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Our spiritual work is to learn to do those two things. To learn to love God and to learn to love our neighbors. To learn to trust that God is present and to learn to embody God's presence for others. Love is being present. 
Love is showing up. Love is working for good in the world. And as much as we receive the love of God, we are called to give that so that others might know that God is present in their lives as well. I'd like to share with you a practice, a prayer practice that I have found to be useful in my own life. And uh, it's a practice that perhaps could be helpful and useful for you as well. Uh, There is in your bulletin a little quarter sheet, a yellow quarter sheet that's titled A Morning Prayer. And this is something that you can take with you. And if you find it to be helpful and useful, use it. And if not, give it to somebody else. Maybe it'll be useful for them too. Uh, This comes from... Uh, I've cited the source at the bottom of the page there from a a reference book, a resource book called The Worship Book, Services and Hymns. I don't know if it's original to 1972. I found it in a a worship book that quotes that source. Uh, So it's been around for a little while anyway, but it's a morning prayer. And it's something that you can pray just at the beginning of your morning. The first thing that you do in the morning. Think about this. What is the first thing that you do on any given morning? Is it uh, turning off the alarm clock? Um, Is it telling the dog to be quiet for a few more minutes? (sighs) Sometimes. Is it pulling out that glowing electronic device and and, uh, finding out what's going on in the world? Uh, For me, sometimes it is. What's the first thing that you do in the morning? Maybe it could be a morning prayer. If it's not the immediately first thing that you do in the morning, maybe you could do it as you get moving. But this is a prayer that you can pray by yourself or with others. And um, my, my challenge for you is to find a way to pray this prayer every morning this week sometime. And uh, see what difference it might make in, in your life as you deal with the issues that come up for you and for others uh, this week. And what I'd like to do is, uh, is to have us pray this prayer together by reading it out loud in unison as we draw this time to a close. So let's, let's pray together. New every morning is your love, great God of light. And all day long, you are working for good in the world. Stir up in us desire to serve you, to live peacefully with our neighbors and all your creation, and to devote each day to your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Lord, so may it be that our desire is to serve you with all that we are every day. Help us to see you at work in our world, working for good as you have from the beginning of time. And lead us through the times of trial that we face so that we might know that you are present and we might give you glory for showing up yet again. We give you thanks for all of this. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.